So, very honored. I'm speaking to Dr. Shane Alexis, who, in addition to many other things, is a general practitioner. He works at Holborn Road. You can check him there. He's a wonderful general practitioner, family doctor. And in addition, was involved in MAJ, the Medical Association of Jamaica, actually president thereof, and involved on the board thereof, of course. And also, in addition to all of that, which I hope we'll get into a little bit, he is a member of People's National Party, and he's uh, running a couple of elections, and he did. He showed himself well for, I believe, it was Southeast St. Mary, and actually doing a very good job, and a very wonderful man, a very wonderful person. So I'm very glad that he could make it tonight, Shane. Thank you so much. Yeah, man, thank you for having me. I should qualify this as a, it's late at night, so even though this is pre-recorded, so I really... Now, Alexis is really going out of his way to really humor me, and, and I really, really genuinely appreciate that. I really, really do. So, to get the ball rolling, and because I know we're all busy here, I, I really, I, I've been thinking and meditating and wondering about our healthcare system generally. You know, even since I've been working out a while now, I won't bore people with how long. And especially during what happened in COVID, it was very sort of a good teaching moment, a good lesson, an interesting point in our history in healthcare. So I, maybe I should just ask, how do you think we did and we fared as a country as it pertains to COVID from a medical standpoint? Well, <clears throat> first of all, let me just congratulate you on you know, branching out and growing into a podcast. Um, I think it shows that you're definitely on top of the technology and what's happening um, in the space where conversations are happening and that you're adding your voice. And I think for those of us who have known you over the years, it, it's a tremendous, um, you know, amount of growth that you're not naturally a, a big talker and trying to get the limelight, but you, you are making, I think, a, a significant inroad with your podcast and, and the topics you cover. So I just want to congratulate you and wish you the best for the future Thank you and, so much. And, and its growth over time. Um, to answer the question, I mean, let me say this, um, mm -hmm. to give your listeners, uh, viewers, a little background about just kind of where I am coming from, what my journey has been like to this point. I, um, I, I you know, grew up in Jamaica, went to prep school, went to Campion, went back to sixth form. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I went off to Barbados, to Cave Hill, um, however, to pursue a degree in arts because at that time I, I started uh, uh, what has become an international sound system with a couple of friends called Copper Shot in 1994. And, you know, I, I think I was busy having a good time doing that. And so, you know, my A-levels, in other words, I don't know what they call it now, but the sixth form exams <laughs> didn't go well, still ended up in Barbados. And while I was there, my grandfather, who um, was the chief medical officer in Grenada, um, that's you know, further south here in the Caribbean, uh, you know, asked me about, you know, had I ever thought about doing medicine? And he said, look, I, there, there are scholarships to study medicine in Cuba. 
and you know would I apply and I did and got through and so in 97 I headed to, to Havana and spent seven years and uh, you know fantastic experience I think it's made me the man I am today and I the way I see medicine and that's why I wanted to give you a little background because I think the most obvious um, aspect of my my development is that I was educated in a socialist country. So I have socialist tendencies. Um, in fact, I am what you call a Fabian, which is a moderate socialist. It doesn't mean that you want to take over all private sector entities and make them um, government run, but it means that you see light you see life rather through, you know, the lens of someone who has a social mind that we're balancing lives um, with every decision. And so I asked myself, um, you know, when I'm presented with a question like you just asked me, I ask myself from the perspective of how I see life, what my educational background was like. So on one hand, yes, I grew up in Kingston 8, um, as Kingston 8 as it gets but then at the same time mm -hmm. I, I was formed professionally in a socialist in an equal society and I actually got my scholarship from Fidel Castro so when I look at our response the first thing I look at um, is what's our primary care um, response what, what, how strong was our primary care system to withstand the pressures of a pandemic. Now, the truth is, a pandemic is a once-in-a-lifetime um, occurrence. It's not something that we may see in our lifetimes again. I can only imagine what planning or, or, or trying to manage the pandemic was like. But I must say that there are some, some areas that I think we could have done differently. Uh, one is we have to look at more um, scenario analysis, not just preparing for um, the possibility of more patients, but look at worst case scenarios, look at what if all the hotels were full, what if, um, you know from your years at KPH, mass, mass casualty, that you're preparing for what if a plane crashes, what if worst case scenario, and then we train for that sort of thing. And I think that what I noticed, particularly when it came to um, vaccinations and the misinformation and, and the low uptake is that people really just didn't have a lot of faith in our primary care system, whether it is um, the community health center, the, the, the larger health centers like a comprehensive health center, um, the questions of trust and faith in, in us as doctors as well as um, nurses, um, public health specialists, administrative uh, staff, etc., whether they really believed us and, you know, could we have done more? And I think the first thing is that we really have to ramp up our primary care um, response so that we're prepared for just about anything. If it's not COVID-19, it'll be COVID-47, Ebola-23, yes. or some unknown, that we have to be in a state of readiness. Um, healthcare is an investment. It's not a cost. It's not something we can look at and say, when it comes, we'll then respond, because it takes years to train a doctor, a nurse, 
Um, it takes years to develop teams in the healthcare system. So it's not something we can start the day before and respond when we see something on CNN or BBC. It's something that as our country we have to invest in. And I think that from a primary care perspective, um, it's not just about wages or salaries, it's conditions of, of, of service. What are our clinics like? It's too often we see in the news that a roof is being put on a health center or it's being painted or a perimeter fence. In my mind, these are basic, um, you yes. know, basic things. I wouldn't buy a house if it didn't have windows or a door. So I wouldn't work in a place if it doesn't have windows or a door. What we have to encourage um, the government and our politicians, both in the opposition as well as in government, is to see the value of investing set amounts, a percentage of what we earn as a country, our GDP. So um, at the moment, we probably spend three or four cents on every dollar towards healthcare. That needs to be closer to 10%. Um, on an annual basis. And of course, in Jamaica, it's well known that we've only done that once. And that was the year that Cornwall Regional was being built in the 19, during the 1970s. And that's, that certainly is older than I am. Uh, so it's more than 40 years ago, we actually spent what was supposed to be spent. And so spending and investing in the country, you know, in our ability to uh, penetrate the communities with not just um, curative measures, that is tablets and medications, but social interventions. Can we intervene in the life of a teenager who is becoming sexually active to not just be um, have responsible behavior, but also to avoid pregnancy? And if they do get pregnant, how, to, how does the system interact with that young lady and young man to ensure that nutrition, follow-up care, screening for HIV, screening for sickle cell, screening for other types of um, antenatal um, maladies or, or illnesses from early can improve outcomes and reduce the burden on our healthcare system. It's also true that for dengue fever and, and, and um, infectious diseases, leptospirosis and, and others, that having a strong community presence right across the island, right in the nooks and crannies, in the actual districts where people are, whether we build out um, brick and mortar or we have mobile units, um, even down to the same Yang Yang motorbike that we can visit, um, you know, lots of uh, valleys and hills. And, and I can tell you from my time in politics, you can see um, you know, you have to go to places where there aren't roads. And so must healthcare, so must doctors and nurses. We must not be afraid to um, have our teams go out there and feel comfortable to do so. And so I think the first point about how we dealt with COVID that I think was not a strong response is our primary care system, its ability to really respond and lead the charge and not only bringing information and helping to prevent the infection, but all the way through to the vaccination efforts that had we had a stronger network, um, you know, I think we could have done better than we did. That said, um, I do appreciate the work that was done by the minister, his team, the prime minister, um, because there wasn't a playbook 
um, for this, but I do have to say that we, um, being the home of the University of the West Indies Medical Faculty, I think we certainly had a lot of um, human resource, um, human resources available and intellectual resources available. I would like, I, I had hoped to have seen where we would have relied on our own studies and our own experiences with COVID to drive our treatment plans, to drive um, our individual approach and not rely on recommendations from the CDC in the US or the UK based version or even PAHO or, or, or WHO. That's not to say that we are above them, but I think that after um, certainly more than 50 years of a medical school, a faculty that's experienced and internationally renowned, and quite honestly, doctors who work on Jamaicans, who study Jamaicans, not just from a cultural standpoint, but the, the disease patterns that we have, our tendencies um, in, in terms of health-seeking behavior, that it would have been a great opportunity to enhance our research and development, um, not just at the university, but obviously the Ministry of Health and, and with other stakeholder groups. And then the third point I'd like to raise that I um, had hoped to have seen was real in capital investment um, between the private sector and the government, so that at the end of a pandemic, we would be able to look to um, you know, a, a multi-story facility or, or several thousand square feet of new uh, clinical space uh, for observation, for surgeries, to ease up the burden on hospitals. So almost like a standalone center, um, real infrastructural change um, in the plans of a children's hospital, um, Percy Juno, you know, Maypen, going right across to um, south in, in, in the West that mm -hmm. we would be able to look on as a country and say in the two years that we had COVID we were able to convince the private sector, the banks, the large institutions to give to really donate in a meaningful way to build out our infrastructure so that we would no longer be ever be in a situation where we would run out of oxygen in our hospitals that there would be oxygen um you know, oxygen plants mm -hmm. at our hospitals that could then support our health centers back to primary care so that oxygen would be available for those who need it, even in the nooks and crannies of a, of a parish um, like Clarendon or, 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 or Manchester, uh, not to mention our own St. Andrew, you know, from where your office is that, you know, there's some twists and turns off the beaten track <laughs> that need attention and, and, and it's heartbreaking when patients just because of where they live can't get the kind of care they need. So in summary, I think um, it tested our primary care um, system. I think that um, while we survived, there was certainly a lot of gaping holes, especially on the vaccination drive side, the public education side, um, as well as the need for us to, uh, and the opportunity missed to have built out real infrastructure at a time when um, the focus was primarily on, on just staying alive. Uh, none of us knew whether we would, would catch it and if we caught it, whether we'd survive. And 
you know, um, God bless those, especially our colleagues. Um, as you know, I lost a close friend yeah. and, and, and partner in, in, in Dr. Lenroth Jackson. But there are many other stories of, of, of physicians that died um, while caring, while in the line of fire, so to speak. So I think that we've all felt the impact of COVID in one way or another. But from a government standpoint, a policy standpoint, I think where we, we need to ramp up is primary care and our public-private partnerships to convince the private sector that it makes sense to invest in the healthcare system. You know, you mentioned so many good points there, Shane, and and there, uh, like you, I had, uh, well, it was really my aunt, uh, who, although I was not close to her, she's no longer here, and it was really a very, oh, quite sudden, she never actually presented to the hospital, she was feeling it unwell, COVID positive, and her husband wished her good night and woke up and she was no longer breathing. So it's, it's really something that, and you know, we have, I'm sure both you as well as I, we've had many patients during that time that had a similar, if not demise, uh, but certainly really never did well, morbidity. We even had a, I had a close family friend who actually had transported our mother abroad and eventually she ended up passing regardless but it, it was really a very a very difficult time so it got me thinking about all of this because all of what you said is I, I, I concur with I, and interestingly I do not know if there was a lot of marketing spend from where I sit and I don't, I'm not in government and I'm apolitical, I just, it seems, and, and rightfully so, but to the retrospectoscope, they like to say that at university, you would think, no, perhaps some of those funds, not being facetious, could have gone to giving medical personnel to deliver in healthcare instead of telling you to go and get vaxxed and these sorts of things. And uh, I, I was wondering, this on one of the things you just said to because especially you've seen this and I know you have contact with nurses, for example, even our colleagues that are basically migrating because the the, the essence of the matter is the the pay scale, it's very difficult to match. That that's really and that that is one part of it. Another part of course is this, is the things that were mentioning that the, the facilities could be much better when we, all of us have, I, I tell people I blame the internet because we can Google and see and read and see what others are doing. So I was wondering how would you go about inspiring, especially the nurses, because that, that seems to be the group that is exiting most. And I must admit, it is sort of easier than my colleagues to exit because we have to do this whole a set of exams and it's a very difficult process and there was up to a week two ago she said that really she, it, it's a single exam it's not really all that challenging for them and it's it literally pass fail and they'll get through so so i'm just wondering how would you inspire these individuals to stay here and work with us in our system well, I think I, I don't want to speak as though, you know, I know everything or I've worked out everything. I mean, mm. these questions are decades old. Yes. Do we 
how do we as a third world country, a developing country, compete with a developed country to retain skills? Um, brain drains are um, a well-documented phenomenon, not just here in the Caribbean, um, but but across the world. I mean, you can look at the continent of Africa, obviously Southeast Asia, um, that so many nationals from other countries are recruited or lured or or motivated to uh, you know join um, larger organizations, research groups, universities, and the list goes on. And that's something we will always have to face now. We can either train more people and just know that, look, we're going to lose 10% of um, each cohort, but we will have enough to sustain us. Um, Dr. Goff, God rest her, along with um, um, now Professor Trevor McCartney, affectionately known as TMAC, did a study in the early 2000s that looked at what would the healthcare system need. I think it's called the Goff McCartney Report. And it looked at, you know, if you were to just have a wish list of, you know, proper caters of surgeons and primary care physicians and all the groups that support us, um, you know, what would it look like? It would require um, changing the structure of our, how we deliver healthcare um, as a first thing. So I think we have to have a purpose built healthcare system, a structure that allows us to absorb um, more colleagues and allow for self-actualization. What I mean by that is, if you have trained in a postgraduate program, whether it's in midwifery, whether it's in anesthesiology, surgery, you want to do that. That's the area you want to work in. But quite often, we, um, because we have such limited um, type A hospitals, in other words, KPH, uh, Jubilee, UE, that not everyone can work in that environment. So you end up having overqualified people in some smaller areas where they're underutilized. And then in other cases, people who are overused, overworked, because there are not enough people entering, for example, primary care. It's not going to be easy to get um, someone to go and work in Manchanil, in Portland. It's not easy to get someone to work in Anata Bay, in St. Mary, because we haven't had the rural development to support, um, whether it's supermarkets, um, schools for them or their, their, their children, um, entertainment, etc. So we have to look at it as under the umbrella of rural development, Ryan. That, in other words, it's not just healthcare by itself, but looking at an environment, an ecosystem that allows young men and women or older persons who would like to return to their native parish or where they came from to offer their services. Um, and how, how do they do that? So the structure has to facilitate self-actualization, spreading, um, spreading human resources evenly or where there is great, the greatest need and moving away from a skewed pay scale where you're paid more to work at a hospital than you are a health center. So why would you work, do more work for less pay in a health center? Yeah, exactly. So we have to look at um, investing again, not seeing it as a cost, 
but investing in our healthcare system. Now, when in, in, in 2010, um, as the president of the JMD at that time, the idea of how do we start to generate money in the healthcare system came to mind. So when I was president, when I became president of the Medical Association, some of the early topics and, and an area I looked at a lot was the sustainable financing of the healthcare system. We had um, Dr. Wayne Henry, that's who is now the Director General of the Planning Institute of Jamaica, Adrian Stokes, who uh, everyone knows from Scotiabank, who is now in his own uh, investment um, vehicle. Um, Dennis Chung from the PSOJ. We had some very qualified individuals look at the question of how could we finance the healthcare system better? How, where would we get the money? It's not just enough to say we need more money. I think that's been the cry, but we, even from within the profession, have to look at where might it come from. Many people speak about, you know, the private-public partnerships, such as I have a CT scan machine, so we offer um, the, the hospital patients at a rate or try to facilitate and help out. But I'm not sure that that really helps the, the long-term viability of of the public health system. So where my mind has gone to, and I'm sorry it takes me so long to answer these questions, but I'm trying to give a, a sort of context, is the Ministry of Health has very valuable assets that can be divested, um, whether in partnership with government agencies or private sector organizations and leveraged to create this capital seed money to invest in our healthcare system. So let me give you a few examples. Bellevue Hospital on Winwood Road is, if I'm not mistaken, several hundred acres, the entire compound. As you know, mental health, um, the approach to mental health has moved away from locking you up and throwing away the key because you're crazy to a more community-based reintegration. So we want to have uh, patients on their medication, get them back into society, get them back into their community, um, working and contributing to their family life as well as um, the general uh, life of the community that they're from without stigma. It means that we're not using those hundreds of acres of land in uh, Bellevue campus. So that could be leased, sold, divested, developed into high-rise residential um, you know, communities where, and there's a great need for, for many civil servants, as you know, get, getting a house is as, as, as family, as men, as, as, as families are, 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 is probably the number one issue that we, that, that's on our mind, you know, a rule for our children and, and ourselves. And the, the, the demand for housing is obviously quite high. And, and so the ministry not becoming a developer, but looking to partner with say the National Housing Trust to have some sort of um, sale or lease agreement. And of course, this could also be of benefit to many categories of workers in the healthcare system who need housing, who are underpaid, but having you know the option of leasing a, a, a two or three bedroom apartment or home 
for four or five years um, during the life of our contract could be very helpful in retaining, attracting and retaining many. Um, you look at a chest hospital scenario, Kingston 6, again, multiple acres of land. When chest hospital was developed, it was developed for things like leprosy and tuberculosis. And at that time in Kingston, um, you know, ligony was seen as bush. You know, I mean, you know, I have many friends uh, who would tell me they used to ride horses right around where the U.S. Embassy is now and up into the hills and, and beyond. So at the time, it wasn't prime real estate, but now it is. And there's an opportunity to develop, again, very valuable real estate and relocate some of these um, services to less costly areas freeing up money and perhaps generating capital for the kinds of investments such as a CT scan machine for children. Children's hospital has no CT scan machine. We now live and practice in a world where a CT scan is the gold standard of, diag of, of, of in diagnostics and yet the, 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 the main hospital in the English-speaking Caribbean does not have one. So we send our infants and young children down to Kingston Public Hospital for a scan where there are lots of adults and many other things. Why are we doing that in 2022? You look at um, St. Anne's Bay Hospital, fantastic facility, well positioned on, on uh, off the main highway on the North Coast and close to hotels. Should we be looking at developing a smaller facility for um, you know, the citizens and trying to push St. Anne's Bay Hospital, repurposing it to position it more for health tourism um, so that it can generate the kind of income to then reinvest in our in the rest of our healthcare um, system. So I, I'm just trying to throw out ideas and, and some amount of imagination around, you know, to retain, we need to invest and to invest, we need money. So we have to generate and float new ideas to try and create a business plan, uh, a viable plan that facilitates um, investment. We cannot, we cannot continue to rely on the National Health Fund that now has, I think, upwards of 700,000 Jamaicans being supported between JADEP and, and, and the NHF um, subsidy. But the question is, is the NHF... Um, going to be solvent in a few years. It's not a trust, so the money can be used by the, 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 the ministry um, as needed. And when you look at the financials during the annual uh, budget um, exercise, you will see that the, the biggest the, the biggest receivable um, to, to the NHF is the government, is the Ministry of Health, that they're providing drugs that are not being paid for. And they are financing many of the upgrades and capital um, expenditures that you hear announced. But is the NHF itself sustainable? And I think, um, you know, I was on the board there before I entered representational politics. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, widely known that the NHF isn't a bottomless pit. And there have been several um, evaluations by um, audit firms and others to demonstrate at what point 
um, would the NHF become insolvent? And what I can say is that we're not far from that. So we have to start to rethink how we finance the health system. And as a final point, I'd say in the same way that we have set a, a debt to GDP ratio um, and, and legislated that Jamaica cannot borrow beyond a certain point, um, whether it was because of the IMF conditionalities in, in, in 2010, 11, that sort of time, or that we saw the value of it. I think a similar move should be made for healthcare or at least social services so that we start to guarantee a certain level of investment so that when you and I require serious medical treatment because of age, that there will actually be something there. Because I think, and, and I know you started medicine maybe 15 years before me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that you see how many, um, you know, teachers, policemen, uh, postmen, uh, civil servants from RGD, from just about every agency, that after 20, 30 years of faithful service to the country, to um, their, their, their ministry, that they're unable to care for themselves. And when they turn to the country for help, we don't have the, um, the, the operating theaters functioning to facilitate their procedures. We don't have the chemotherapy drugs to help them. We don't have the beds to admit them. We don't have um, the ability to give them a dignified experience when they need it. And I think that that's the main challenge that we face as a country, the financing of our healthcare system and starting to make serious um, inroads, both on the legislative and on the investment side to help protect and advance um, what we're doing so that, quite honestly, maybe you and I may not benefit, but our children, and please God, their children will benefit from a much stronger system. But we can no longer rely on the good old days of the 1970s when various things were achieved. Um, we, our generation must now contribute um, in serious thought, um, you know, use our intellect, use our, our clinical experience after um, I mean, I've been qualified now 18 years. Um, so I think while I don't have as much experience as some of our older colleagues, I certainly think that it's enough to offer an opinion and to offer um, suggestions. And, and the truth is why I got into politics in the first place was that I've, I've long recognized that in order to become the chief decision maker in the Ministry of Health, the Minister of Health, it's a job that you can only get through politics. You can't, it, it has nothing to do with being a professor or a PhD or the brightest doctor or non-doctor in the class. It's a political appointment and therefore you have to be prepared to get involved in the political um, system to be able to have the chance to become the Minister of Health, which ultimately is our chief decision maker in our ministry and who we rely on to convince uh, the cabinet um, of what the right things to do are. But I agree with you that it certainly cannot be right when we cannot account for hundreds of millions of dollars, um, especially when people are, are suffering or dying. So I think we have to do a better job of 
um, safeguarding what we raise, ensuring that it is spent in the right places, and that we have the outcomes to show for it. Yes, you know, you, you mentioned so many good points again, Shane. The, the minister actually said it's 720,000 people in one thing I read not too long ago uh, on NHF. And I just, NHF is really is medication, really, between NHF and JADEP. And I was just thinking that we would love all the number if there are 3 million people here and over 2 million have a chronic disease, which it, that's what it mainly covers. The point would be to get as much people on it. Now, that, those numbers that he mentioned, though, it was he was referencing the fact that the numbers can't continue as they are, because since he's been there, this minister, he said it's over 100% since 2016, I believe, till now. Or I think it's 2016 till now that the, the budget has just been, you know, to buy this medication. And NHF is really, as I understand it, model of NHS, which is um, coming from the UK. And NHS not only offers medication, offers healthcare. So, you know, thinking altruistically or in a utopian world, I would prefer there to be some facility, which they would say or suggest is what we have here, which is our public health or government clinics, government hospitals, you don't have to pay. And, but again, I do not know if that healthcare is optimal, quite frankly, and we could really debate that heavily. Now, that being said, we do see where NHS in the UK, they're having some problems over there uh, with that. So I don't know, in fact, I believe it was Lee Kuan Yew said that he realized that NHS could not work in Singapore because it he thought it was a failure. He had to study at Oxford, I think, or Cambridge. And he just never liked the idea. And it, it's been a very challenging to his, in his eyes, as a, just a challenging vehicle. So I say all of this to say that I notice, I think that I, I've been asking this question a lot of people. And I don't know if this is an answer, but I'll tell you what others have shared with me. And, I, and this is my view on it, that we cannot or I don't think any government can offer more money or equivalent money. And people have to realize that this is a third world country. So you cannot translate the dollar like that. It just it's a different society, a different place. You if you want a US equivalent pay, you're going to have to move to the United States or a small island. And therefore, interestingly though, I think that we could give benefits. So What's a benefit? I had a patient working at Sissoka chain. She was pregnant. She just wanted to you know, lie down on the bench you, in her restroom. just to, And there was no bench or anywhere to recline on. Well, that would be my definition of a benefit. Just give her something to lie down on. And that she, would, she said she would be happy with that. And that was not available. So she came to me because she was having things. So I had to, of course, give her some time off. So I was just thinking, any any area like that that the government for these healthcare individuals could could, for example, a, a good lounge, you know, be, uh, was in surgery for a little while. I don't know if you know the shame. They we had a, a fairly decent lounge at university, not the greatest, but not the worst, and just somewhere to sit down and just talk to your friends and laugh and have a drink and, and things like that. So 
things like that. And then the other thing that somebody suggested to me, and I'll say his name is Mike Mills, that he his view on it is that you could bring in individuals like yourself, myself, or specialists to come and partner with the government on the government's say at a K page to build up a unit with the staffing and already employed to the government. And after a period of X time where they recoup their funding, they leave the unit there to stand and continue delivering care. It's an interesting thought. I the amount of bureaucracy that that again that's an idea. I think that people that's somebody thinking about something. So it it you know that 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 I found that to be very interesting. And that that brings another point that it seems as if everything in government, which although you well, you, you have been somewhat involved. I think the bureaucracy, I don't know if that can change because these things, some of these things, they need to move a little faster if the effect that they're looking for, in my view, is to occur. You know, we can't hide behind, so, behind so, bureaucracy. You're so right. There's some interesting... Um, additional points to what you just said. The NHF, as we know it, is only half of what was, was created in the legislation. It was actually, it's still meant to be a national insurance. So it, it, all the legislation is in place. What's missing is um, obviously some amount of investment to seed the actual insurance fund, but also to agree on uh, the format. Is it something that you pay for when you get to the point of service? Is it something you pay for in advance, like an NHT benefit? Is it um, for anything under the sun that you may need, or is it for a certain um, basket or menu of items? that would be that that in turn would be informed by what are the greatest disease burdens that the country faces so hypertension diabetes and say well the national insurance will pay for investigations and your checkups and monitoring that in other words a primary healthcare um model which we spoke about and that's why i started there and then you know anything beyond that may be some other mechanism to assist. Now, that investment hasn't occurred. There have been, there's been the tabling of various papers, green, white, you know. Yes. Uh, it takes time, apparently, uh, through Parliament to be able to table the intentions of the government of the day and try to flesh it out. But we keep getting stalled and distracted and, and it's time for us to think in 20 or 30 year blocks um, and not five or, or three or five year cycles in terms of how, how we deal with social issues. And, and tonight we're talking about healthcare. So, um, you know, healthcare. But the same is true of education, um, social security, pensions, etc. So I'm just making the point that there is a mechanism legislatively that already exists to transition the NHF 
to a more robust entity to provide greater services and to be able to operate like an insurance. What we haven't done is operationalize it for the reasons I mentioned. So that's something you expect. Um, quite frankly, the, 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 the government to push from a policy um, level, what are the priorities and this should be one. So you have a sustainable system, not just when we have the money, we have, you know, sugar strips, but we might not have any next week. We, 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 can't, we can't run a healthcare system that way. We can't expect to have good outcomes that way. The second point is that I think that we have to think, even as colleagues, very big, and I'm not critical of, of the suggestions you mentioned, but we have to think in terms of billions. Yes, billions are made up of thousands and, and millions, but we need game-changing ideas and, and, and initiatives to say, look, how are we going to um, generate, um, you know, seven, eight million US to be able to put a proper diagnostic suite in Mandeville to deal with central Jamaica and the same for Cornwall and the same for the North Coast, you know, how do we um, really uh, develop not just our, our physical infrastructure, but also ensure that we are going to be training surgeons to operate with these machines in tandem with these machines in four or five years time. So in other words, what is our healthcare plan over 20 years? And then look at we need to train this individual and keep, retain. Retention is, 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 is perhaps the largest channel, challenge. As you mentioned, and, and there, there are many examples. There are no um, facilities for parents at Children's Hospital. There's no lounge. Um, you know, KPH and Jubilee share one lounge, as you know, as our... our, our, our main referral um, hospitals in the capital. Uh, Spanish Town Hospital, again, limited staff um, facilities. It doesn't send the right message, but at the same time, when you look at the buildings and how they are, the sizes, we have long grown them. Children's Hospital, when you go there, as you know, the casualty area where the clinics are, are considered temporary structures. They were never meant to be there 30 or 40 years later, being used as the main area for patients to be seen, right? So we, we outgrew our infrastructure years ago. And so these buildings are no longer fit for purpose, but it's what we have. What I am advocating for is the sort of billion dollar injections where we see it as, as, a, as, a, as a national priority right. to simply put what is necessary. Because I could say to you, um, if, you are, if you did a poll, how many people would vote for a road to St. Thomas versus having a CT scan and operating theaters in St. Thomas? Yeah. How many people would vote for cancer care centers across the island for themselves or their, their families or dialysis, access to dialysis more than 
a, you know, you could a, a larger runway so, right. at exactly. Ian, yeah. you know, Bosco yes. Bell. Yes. And so it, we have to convince our politicians, um, in my case, I was prepared to become one, to be able to make these cases to say, this is the right thing to do. This is good for the country. And in order to make, to carry that home, I don't think we can depend on uh, whether I am ever successful at, at, at getting the job of Minister of Health or whether your, your son becomes the Minister of Health. I think we have to have a, a joint approach where from inside the profession, all the stakeholder groups, they are perhaps, um, if I'm not mistaken, a little over 30 bargaining units in the Ministry of Health. So it means you have public health inspectors, nurses, nurse practitioners, midwives, mm -hmm. pharmacists, uh, pharmacy technicians, physiotherapists, doctors, all of these groups have to speak with one voice. Yes. That's where the Medical Association of Jamaica comes in um, and Pharmacy Society, NAJ, etc., to speak with one voice, to start convincing not just our colleagues, but um, the wider population of the need to invest in healthcare. Additionally, when I was president, I joined the private sector organization of Jamaica um, to um, be able to uh, make the point to the business community. And I, I even was on their council, in other words, their board, from the perspective of the Medical Association of Jamaica to be able to lend our voice to this discussion to convince those who are outside of medicine to say, look, support the drive to have um, primary care investments, support the drive to see healthcare as an investment and not a cost, because it helps productivity in our factories, our hotels, our businesses. When you have less sick um, employees, when you have healthier employees, when you have happy employees. And so we made the case to the PSOJ at that time that you would have increased productivity and therefore profitability if we see healthcare as a benefit to all of us. And I think that has to be um, not just said, but said again and again and reminded um, not just to the government of the day, but to voters, the population as a whole, to understand that, look, we're in it together. And, you know, today for you, tomorrow for me, you, any of us can, can get sick at any point and find ourselves um, at the hands of the public care system. And we have to ensure that it is a good system um, when we get there. Exactly right. You know, it, well, it's getting late, but I have a couple more that I just wanted to, I think, I'll be vilified if I don't even ask you an opinion on what happened with those young babies recently at Jubilee. Any opinion at all, medical and otherwise? And, you know, what, what, what are your views on that? Well, I, I I have to start by saying that um, I think any, you know, now that I have children in particular, I think any death is, you know, heart-wrenching, especially 
of, of a newborn who never had the chance to experience life in, in, in any real way, you know. Um, obviously, the, the dreams of those parents, we don't know whether those parents were trying for years um, to be able to conceive, whether this was their last shot at it, whether um, these were, there were mothers who may have been in, in their 40s and, you know, found love for the, you know, got a second chance at life, so to speak, in terms of romance or, or just never had the, the, the chance to have a child before. And so I think it's, it's, it's tragic what has happened. Now, the question is, is this the first time? The answer is no. In any hospital setting, unfortunately, there are deaths. You know, we, we try our hardest, as you know, to avoid death. I mean, death is, is the one outcome you don't want for any patient. But the more patients you have, statistically, death becomes a possibility. Um, it is true that there are statistical ranges that are considered acceptable in the sense that um, you won't always be right. We won't always be able to save everyone because sometimes the illness is just bigger than us. It's just more than we can handle. That said, and I'm trying to be balanced, Ryan, because I think, as you said, you know, my politics, you know, my, my views are, are public in terms of, yes, my political yeah, persuasion. Right, you're a doctor first, so I mean, you can, I know you're sure, but, but there are people that opinion. listen that you, you, I don't want them to be um, distracted by my politics, the color of my politics, but I'd like to convince them with my words that at the end of the day, while I don't expect the minister to know the death rate in any hospital on a given week or even month, what I do expect is that our primary care, the antenatal care is perhaps the most important determinant in the outcomes of, or put another way, to change or reduce infant mortality, antenatal care is where you have to make an investment. In other words, what do we know about those babies and their antenatal, their, their, their mother's care? Were they underage women? Were they women who were smoking and drinking during pregnancy? Were they even fed? Were they able, what were their living conditions? Were they traumatized or shot at or, or raped while they were pregnant? Did they, they pick up any sexually transmitted infections? Were they underweight? overweight and so those are the factors and so when you to me when i hear of neonatal deaths i look at what was the anti what was the care before and if that child was already um compromised then it wouldn't take you know the nearest germ the nearest sneeze may have can cause that child's demise and as a country again my earlier theme primary care, preventative care, investing to make sure that we have systems that allow underage women, women who are, um, when I say underage, meaning, as you know, medically under 20 being a high-risk pregnancy, but over 20, whether they're in school or working, to have access to care. And what kind of care? Is there an ultrasound available at those clinics for them? Or do they then have to take another day from work to get an ultrasound so that the medical team can advise that mother 
of the risk or of the status of her, her child. Um, what are the feeding programs? Are we able to have community aids, social workers visit these families, visit these homes to make sure that these mothers are, are eating, that they are educated around proper care of themselves to be able to have a healthy child, um, carry that child to term and beyond. Um, you know, when we talk about primary care, we have to talk about, you know, clinics and the hours that they work. Most people cannot get time off to simply go and see the doctor. And then, of course, it's an all-day experience each time. And as you know, a pregnant woman might see, in an ideal circumstance, antenatal care might include, I don't know, anywhere between six or seven at the, at the bottom end and probably a dozen visits over the course of our pregnancy to make sure that everything is going well. Mm. And those clinics close in the early afternoon and many are in volatile areas. So crime becomes a factor in our ability to care. And those are the issues that I would hold a Minister of Health responsible for, to ensure that the policy directives, to ensure that the, the proper representation and the convincing of the cabinet is done so that these areas become safe, that the legislation for um, maternity leave isn't just limited to maternity leave, but do we need to legislate about antenatal care to say, when you are pregnant, you have a right to care, that it's not a sick day to go to the doctor when you are pregnant. Yes. We have to look at asking the government, what do we spend as a country per capita, per patient, in antenatal care now versus five, 10 years ago. Because I suspect you'll find that the spend is, is the same, but we have inflation and yeah. we have um, resources that are now getting older in terms of infrastructure, et cetera. And we have an overworked human resource component. That's the midwives, the nurses, the doctors, et cetera. So the question is, are our outcomes getting better? And if we just take that news story, the impression is it's not. Because the, the sad truth is that there are no rich people giving birth at Victoria Jubilee. So as a country, we have to look very deeply into ourselves and as a profession to say that is our job to look out for who can survive or for those who are weakest amongst us. And I think that when you talk about a pregnant woman, a newborn, you, you don't get much more vulnerable than that. And I think that we have let that group or those groups down. And I think that it would have gone a far way to hear um, the government's commitment on this cannot continue to happen. That it's not just about a germ or, you know, saying that a company didn't wipe down something or it wasn't disinfected. My point is that had these children perhaps been stronger, given a better opportunity while they were in the womb, then things may have turned out differently. Yes, I agree again with a lot of what you said. We who work in it perhaps have a very experienced viewpoint and it is, I actually had to rotate, I'm sure like you through that, that, that department and I'll tell you this, when we were there, I don't even think the pediatrician used to come that much. I remember the registrars are running the unit. Now, 
I'm sure that has changed now. This was many years ago, but it's just a reflection on the theme of our discussion here that our healthcare, we are filled with all these wonderful individuals, so much brilliant minds that a lot of people that chose to stay are like yourself. And unfortunately, well, for whatever the reason, the, the, the actual delivery of care in objectively, as I say, I'm apolitical, could be better. It, it, it's just, and these are these questions that I keep asking people because I really want to know and I want to help, even from where I sit. I think I have chatted you out thoroughly, Shane. I, I should ask, though, as a closing one, your political life, where you see yourself now, you are you pursuing, you're continuing, or oh, what, what's, the, what's the future for Dr. Alexis in politics? Um, it's a tough time for the People's National Party. I think that's, you know, um, public knowledge. Uh, I think that um, I'm still young. I, I hope to make a contribution in the future um, at, at a very high level. But I also recognize that, that, that that's not just up to me. At whatever level I can contribute to national life, I'll continue to do so. Um, politics is one avenue. It's an important avenue mm -hmm. that young Jamaicans, professionals need to participate in. Um, it's, it's ungrateful in the sense that, you know, not everybody says thank you. Some people take what you do for them for granted. But I'd also say that there are many um, heartwarming stories where you see change, change in a community, the, the, the smile on a, a child's face or, or an elderly member of the community's face at just a pleasure, at support, at relief um, from, a, from a tough situation. Um, seeing Jamaica, I mean, I've seen, I've seen poverty I didn't know existed, but I've also seen um, some, some great times, some, some fantastic uh, get-togethers, round robins, football matches, cricket matches, um, dominoes, uh, in all kinds of places in Jamaica, like, you know, having grown up, you know, what, what people call, call uptown, um, I, I wasn't exposed to. Uh, I've had some of the best meals. I mean, I, the best lobster I had was in a place called Rock River, and it's on a hillside, and there's no sea or anything for miles. But this young man can just cook, and he made the best lobster I ever had. And I've I've traveled a few places, so... I know what good food tastes like. Mm -hmm. And to see that kind of talent, um, I've, I've heard some of the best music. I thought that, well, you know, the big songs here in Kingston can play all music. But I've seen some kids really, I mean, make the place jump. Uh, I mean, in, in just very humble, spontaneous circumstances. Mm. So it's opened my eyes to Jamaica. And, and the talent that abounds, the beauty that we have, our natural um, resources. And, and so I stay motivated, but I hope that I'll have the chance. I'm certainly not afraid of the politics or exposing myself to criticism or ridicule. It, it, it's certainly a, a very invasive activity because your private life, and I dare say even your family, is open to... Um, you know, examination or criticism, and you know sometimes it it, uh, it it hurts. And I think I think politicians for both the Labour Party and, and 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 the PNP would tell you that. But I think that some of us are just wired differently, in the same way that some of us 
are not afraid of blood or not afraid um, to, to help someone, um, no matter how poor or dirty they may be or how you know nice they may look, we're, we're there to help. And I think that many of us who um, try to participate in, in political life see that as, a, as something necessary. Um, Norman Manley was a successful lawyer and recognized that the solution to our problems were mostly political. You, you, to pass laws and legislation has to be done in parliament, in a democracy. And, and so he started to, to part participate more. And when he was approached to join the People's National Party, well, the rest is history um, in terms of his contribution um, to national life. But the point I'm making uh, is that those are the kinds of stories that motivate me and, and you know, keep me on the path of service. Um, but I also know that I, I too will have to make space for others to do the same. But I would like to have, um, just on a personal note, though, I'd like to be able to say to my children and their friends that I tried. Yes. Rather than just saying that it has to be done or that I know what could be done, um, that I tried, um, whether I would become successful or not, just the fact that I tried and, and put myself out there is a very satisfying feeling. And um, I guess what I'm saying is I recommend to others listening and to yourself, yourself as well that you don't have to, you know, run around in an orange shirt or a green shirt to support a political mm -hmm. movement. But by having these kinds of important conversations, disseminating um, intellectual conversation, getting thoughts out, provoking discussion, um, influencing um, how we think as a society, and especially at, 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 at the leadership level, is critical and is a part of political life. Who you vote for or support, at the end of the day, um, certainly I have no issue. I know who I'd like you to support. But the okay. fact of the matter is that um, I think that the more of us that are discussing and thinking and genuinely trying to identify solutions are more than likely willing to participate in the solution. What we have to work on, I think, politically is um, recruiting um, better quality candidates, not just at local government, but at um, you know the constituency level. And that's not to say we don't have good people, but we need the best minds because we really do face some 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 serious times when you look at the, the crime situation when you look at education in schools with with kids not graduating after you know years not being literate that sort of thing it means that there's a lot of work to do so we need all hands on deck all Jamaicans uh, really need to get involved in what's happening in the political process and I'd simply say that for those who are you know not meeting the standard for those who are considered um, course or who are um, excessively partisan, that the system has a way of, of shifting them out and shifting others who are, you know, sort of um, more interested in, in advancing the country, putting Jamaica first, not just individual or partisan interests um, forward, because the more we have participation, the more choices the electorate will have. In other words, instead of just one Shane Alexis, you could have 10 others who are better than me, 
And that gives that can only help the country. But if we only have one option or two options or the same option after 30 years, I think the country um, doesn't benefit as much. And that's that's what I'd just like to say as a closing comment, that programs like yours continue, that you're, this is an excellent initiative that, that you've started. I, I hope that people just spend the time to listen to what you're trying to do and that you're not phased by whether it's 100 or 10 people listening. <laughs> Changing one life, that's all we can do as doctors. We do one life at a time. So this is no different and it's just a positive conversation. And, and again, just congrats to you. And um, I, I almost said the team, but... Well, the team is me for now, but hopefully, and my it, wife, it, I suppose. A, <laughs> yes, well, we, we have our families and our families support yes. our endeavors. And you never know where these conversations can end up. And we live in a digital space where it's almost archived forever. Yes. Uh, and your kids will know what your where your mind is or was at the time and, and the kinds of conversations you are trying to have and, and what you're trying to do um, in the country in your own way. And, and I feel the same way. So yes. I think that in a sense, Ryan, that as long as you're working towards the benefit of the people, that's politics. The color is really secondary. Um, and, and people can, you know, debate that. But the main thing is to be involved on the issues that affect us all. Well, I, I thank you so much.